Please be seated. Good evening to you. Isaiah chapter 42 tonight. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and uh, wave and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord tonight. And as I give you that Bible, it'll be marked to our passage here. Isaiah chapter 42 is on Sunday nights. We go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. In chapter 42, we have again an evidence of why the book of Isaiah has been nicknamed the fifth gospel because it is so filled, and I mean so much of it is yet to come in the book, so filled with the description of the life and of the ministry of Jesus. And we have one of the great descriptions of Jesus uh, in uh, all of the book of Isaiah here in chapter 42 as Isaiah prophesies by the Holy Spirit to the nation of uh, southern kingdom of Judah of the Messiah that God would send into the world and uh, through their bloodline and uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to miss in any way it's almost as if you couldn't as we would read it but he doesn't want anyone to misunderstand who this is written about none other than Jesus himself as the Holy Spirit then quotes this particular passage in its entirety in Matthew chapter uh, in Matthew's gospel applying it to uh, Jesus and so this beautiful description behold God says concerning the Messiah concerning Jesus my servant and so he was and is a servant. He came into the world not to be served, uh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he gave his life as a ransom for many as the Father's servant. Behold my servant who I uphold. Jesus was upheld by the power of uh, the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember when he was standing before Pilate about to be crucified in just a few short hours. And Pilate said, do you not speak to me? Do you not know who I am? And Jesus said, you would have no power at all except my Father had given it to you. Jesus was upheld by the Father. My elect one in whom my soul delights. The Father delights in the Messiah. You remember concerning Jesus at his water baptism. The Holy Spirit came down uh, upon uh, Jesus there at that water baptism. The Father declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, The Father delights in the Son. Later on in the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured into his eternal glory with Peter, James, and John, the Father spoke again in their hearing, Behold, this this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then he added the words, Hear ye him, in the light of um, what Peter had to say. And we won't get into all of that because... Um, a friend um, hides a matter. <laughs> so, and so I have put my spirit upon him, and so the spirit was upon Jesus. He began his uh, public ministry with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That word upon is a baptism of the Holy Spirit word, isn't it? The Holy Spirit has uh, three relationships with a Christian. He is with us, he is in us by virtue of our faith in Christ, and then he is upon us, Acts chapter uh, 
uh, 1 and 2 upon us for the purpose of being witnesses, the power to live like Christ and to serve the Lord in the fallenness of this world. Uh, We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this power to be a witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. As the book of Acts says, Jesus himself uh, beginning his public ministry with that great work of the Holy Spirit upon his life and all that came afterward was a work of the Holy Spirit, even as the Father declared it would be uh, here 2,700 years ago. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. In other words, the Messiah would come into the world not just with a concern for the welfare and the salvation of the Jews, but also the Gentiles as well. And Jesus made a a point, and and this passage is again quoted elsewhere in the gospel, speaking of the fact that Jesus came and brought his gospel not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. And so Jesus was not a huckster. He wasn't a religious promoter. Um, he wasn't angry. Um, his, his public ministry was one, his private one as well, but his public one was in the handling of the word of God, declaring God's message to the world of one of being gentle, being under control. He would declare the message to people, the truth to people, and then he would leave it to them to decide what they wanted to do with it. But he didn't put people in headlocks. He didn't abuse people. Uh, he didn't, uh, you know, upbraid them in some kind of an ugly, hostile uh, kind of way. Um, and uh, But... Uh, but handled uh, handled that area of his ministry, that public area of his ministry, in, in such a gentle and a, a beautiful way. Someone says, well, you know, what about when he cleansed the temple twice? Well, even there in that, and he did go in and he was filled with the zeal of his father over how uh, all of heaven, including God, was being misrepresented in the abusing and robbing people in the temple in the way that it was being done by the religious leaders. And yet, uh, even in that, there was the anger and the wrath that was a part of that was sanctified. It was a holy uh, righteousness and that it came from a holy anger, from a holy righteousness. And so uh, this uh, uh, not being a contentious person or a fighter or that kind of thing. And, of course, Paul wrote to Timothy, perhaps with this very thing in mind, Timothy being a minister, giving him instruction really for all of us as we serve the Lord. And he said, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. And Jesus was not a quarreler. He was not interested in that kind of thing. But be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And very much like the ministry of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. In other words, Jesus will never crush, he will never break the weak or the vulnerable. Think about how many people have come to Jesus over the thousands of years now 
in a moment of weakness, a moment of being fragile, a moment of being broken over so many relationships and circumstances in their life, and they took the risk. I've heard about Jesus. I've heard the kind of Savior that he is. If, if he turns me away, if he breaks me, if he's harsh with me as I turn to him, then I won't have any hope at all. And people turn to him. And even today, all over the world, it's happened where they've turned to him in their brokenness, in their fragile condition, and found uh, that he will, a bruised reed, he will not break. Always tender in his treatment of the vulnerable and uh, broken people. And we give him praise for that tonight. And the smoking flax, he will not quench. Uh, in other words, he will breathe life into any situation where hope is about to be extinguished. And a smoking flax was a kind of a... Uh, a um, uh, piece of vegetation where it is about to go out and on the verge of going out and you could take that thing and you could start to blow on it and bring it back to a flame so that the flame would not extinguish related to the flax. And so Jesus does that in our lives spiritually. He comes into lives. Maybe you experienced it in your own life by, by way of coming to him and making him your savior. All hope was gone. Your life was hopeless. You had no hope for yourself. And he kept hope alive. And look at the miracle that he's done in your life. And the reason that Jesus can keep hope alive in a person's heart in a way that nobody else can is because there is no situation in our life, no problem in our life that is greater than his love, greater than his power and his resources. So it isn't just a matter of like, coming the way that kind of positive thinking people do, where they say, just have hope. I mean, that will take you a little ways. But he gives legitimate reason for hope. The hope is in him, the one who is greater than every problem uh, that we face. And so a smoking flax, he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. In other words, he will not stop his work in the world until truth prevails in every part of the world and in every human heart. And this will occur ultimately in the uh, millennial reign and then most finally in the new heavens and in the new earth. In other words, Jesus has a stick to related to his um, uh, goal and his purpose the fa- that the Father has given to him to establish a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God that will one day fill everything and then this fallen kingdom of man and the devil and all in the world it will one day give way uh, to the fullness of the kingdom of God. Um, I had a fifth grade teacher by the name of Mr. Hample and uh, and, of course, he's probably gone by now. But, you know, when you're in the fifth grade, it seems like all your teachers, they could have been 22 years old and they seemed ancient. But, so he's probably just like three years older than me. So, but Mr. Hample did kind of what we would call a devotional every day, all the way through the whole school year. He'd do a little three-minute, five-minute devotional to begin the day, and every devotional, so to speak, every little kind of pep talk that he would give was on the, uh, the theme of stick 
intuitiveness. I mean, he had that on the brain. How many ways can you say, you know, stick with something? Uh, And Mr. Hample found all of the ways to do that. And Jesus uh, is, uh, boy, now the illustration seems silly. comes to my mind at the moment, you know. But Jesus has that kind of stick-to-itiveness, what he has come into the world to accomplish and to finish the establishing of justice uh, for truth he will do. He will not fail in the same vein nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, the God, says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which uh, uh, comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you, speaking of Jesus, in righteousness. Jesus would lead a perfectly righteous life, and so uh, he did, and will hold your hand, and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to my people. We remember Jesus as he established uh, the Lord's Supper. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood. He replaced the old covenant that was based upon a faith in the coming Messiah uh, expressed in the offering of sacrifices with a new covenant that was based upon his blood, us looking back upon him as the Messiah, his sacrifice upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, just as God declared uh, he would do. Uh, I keep you and give you personally a covenant based upon the Messiah, give you as a covenant to the people and then as a light to the Gentiles. And so he was to open blind eyes. Jesus did that. The Gospels are filled with descriptions of his opening up of the blind eyes of those who were physically blind, but also spiritually blind as well. And then further to bring out prisoners from the prison, those that were are imprisoned by their bondage to sin. He came into the world to do that. I would venture to guess that every single one of us who is a Christian in this world, in this room, has experienced the reality of that related to Christ. He brought us prisoners out of the prison that we were in, the prison of selfishness and sin, and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Beautiful description of our Savior. just want to go... That's my Savior right there. I'm not going to do any trash talking. I just, it feels good. Maybe you heard that, uh, ever heard that recording. I hope everybody has. I think it was, uh, it wasn't the, the guy that did the uh, audio version of the, That's My King. I forget what his name was. I'm trying thinking Guy King, but that's a different commentator. But there's this beautiful boasting and the beauty of the Lord. And we see that here. The Father speaking of it concerning uh, his Son and, and our Savior. I am the Lord. That is my name, God said. And my glory I will not give to another. This is a wonderful ministry verse. God will never share his glory with not an idol, not with one of his servants. As soon as somebody starts to touch his glory, then he just leaves and he goes someplace else. A sure way to lift God's glory off of your life and your service to the Lord 
is to begin to compete with him for the credit for what God is doing in you and through you. And so God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. God is not interested in sharing his people with other gods and with other idols and other things that are uh, being worshipped. We are to worship in the words of Jesus, worship the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. All, 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 all. Uh, And that's what he deserves. He deserves our all, everything that we are, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, all of it directed to him, not directed to him 90%, 80%, 50%, and then he is forced to share us with all manner of idols and other things that we allow to become a master passion or a drive within our lives that is disobedient to his, his word and his call. The Bible does teach that God is a jealous God. And sometimes we think of jealousy solely in terms of its negative kind of consequence. If you have ever been, uh, you know, had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or whatever who is jealous in a a carnal, in a fleshly way, that is a miserable uh, sin to live with. I don't need to tell you about that if you've lived with it. But jealousy, and the holy jealousy that God has for us, if he did not possess it, there would be something wrong with him and wrong with his love. It would be, there would be something wrong with a husband uh, who shared his wife uh, with other men, even for a kiss or a hug or whatever. You'd look and say, the absence of jealousy, uh, the absence of of love, of viewing this person as yours. I mean, this is a flaw in your life if it's not present in some kind of a holy way. And God has that. He has a great love for us and, uh, and, uh, and is not interested in sharing us with any of the other gods or the false gods and idols of the world. And it's something commendable and beautiful in him. Behold the former things, uh, for, things have come to pass, and the new thing I declare, therefore they spring forth, uh, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And so God is saying essentially here, I've spoken to you of a king who is going to come, he's going to identify him as Cyrus very, very shortly, who is going to deliver the children of Israel out of their Babylonian bondage. And God is saying in these couple of verses here that as sure as I named Cyrus, and Cyrus came into human history and delivered you from your Babylonian captivity, this Messiah that I've described to you here is going to come into human history, and he's going to be all of this to you. And so for them, by faith, they looked ahead to the coming of this Messiah. We're able to see the fulfillment of that before our very eyes and uh, uh, recognizing the fulfillment 2,000 years ago in the coming of Jesus. In light of this Messiah, Isaiah then calls on uh, uh, the whole world here to praise the Lord for the fact that he is going to supply us with this Messiah, with this servant. He says, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. And continually we see in the Bible where God calls upon us as his people to sing a new song. And one of the reasons reasons that there's a need to sing a new song to the Lord is he's always doing something new in our lives. Uh, I don't know. The rhythm of my week, your week is a little bit different. For all of us, it's a little bit different. My week runs Sunday to Sunday. 
And there's always uh, in the back of my mind is the old saying, uh, it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. Sunday's always a coming in uh, my particular call upon my life. So there is that rhythm that is going on uh, all of the time. But I feel like every time I come in and here I'm going to teach the Word of God again or try to or whatever it is that I do here, I feel like I'm a new person from the week before. I've learned so much in my relationship with him. I mean, I've known him all of these years, since 1980. And yet I'm learning and growing as fast now as when I was a Christian. And it's a wonderful thing. The same thing is happening, I'm sure, in your life as well. And when there's this kind of growth always going on in our life, there's a need for a new song to praise him with. And I'm thankful to the Lord. I don't know that much. I was thinking about this uh, a little bit earlier. I'm not an expert on uh, the worship practices of other religions in the world and whether they have this whole group of people that is raised up within their religion that keeps uh, the adherence to their religion always supplied with fresh new songs to worship uh, God with or whether it's something that's unique to Christianity. You can research it and then let me know what the answer to that is. But all I know is that as Christians, think about how God is always touching worship leaders, giving them new songs, lyrics, music, so that we can come in and we're not singing the same songs we sang 10 years ago or 20 years ago, not at least of necessity, not even necessarily singing the songs we sang six months ago. There's always a new song because God is always doing something new in our life and in history, and we need a new song to sing uh, to him. And I'll tell you, I'm thankful for worship leaders, and I'm thankful for those that God uses to supply me with a new song. It's fabulous how he'll do that. These new songs will come along, and they're just what the Holy Spirit is doing around the world or in a city or in the United States. It's just what the condition of the world is such that we need to sing this to our God, you know. And um, I forget what song we closed up with this morning. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The whole world's a wreck. It's a mess all around us. What is there to believe in and all? And then God gives somebody an anthem like that for us to sing in the middle of what we're in the middle of. And maybe that song wouldn't have gotten any traction at all 50 years ago in quieter times, more stable times perhaps in the United States. But we need it now and we love to sing it. And I know you love to sing it too because you get out of your seat and that takes a lot for some of you uh, to lift your hands up to the Lord and to give him praise. Sing to the Lord a new song. He's provided a savior for the world. Give him a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, your coastlands and you inhabitants of them. The whole world is to praise the Lord because the whole world is a beneficiary of this Messiah. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing and let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and 
uh, declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. And here the Lord declares that he is going to uh, prevail against his enemies and he's going to deliver his people from Babylon and bring them uh, back into Jerusalem and the land. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man and he shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. I do not want to meet God as a man of war and I never will as a Christian and neither will you. We will meet him one day as our heavenly father but he can be and he is a man of war when he needs to be. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Sometimes we can wring our hands as Christians at how it seems like evil is prevailing. The blasphemers of God are prevailing. Those that hate God are prevailing. And for sure they are growing and they are becoming bolder. But this battle is not in any kind of danger at all. God is going to prevail against every one of his enemies. He's not on any kind of heart medication. I'm not putting you down if you've got it. He is very, very relaxed about everything. He's going to prevail. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. Women, you understand this, delivering a baby, panting and gasping at the same time. This is a weird God describes himself here as a man of war and then like a woman in labor giving birth. And he describes himself as both because both of them give every ounce of their strength and the accomplishment of the thing that they are attempting to do. And God says, I'm going to leave all of it out on the, on the floor, all of it out on the table. I will be successful in this. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation and make the rivers coastlands. I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind in uh, speaking of the delivering of his people, bringing them through the wilderness from Babylon to Jerusalem. I will bring the blind by a way they do not know, uh, did not know. I will lead them in the past they have not known. I will make darkness light before them in crooked places straight. There was a whole generation that had grown up 70 years in Babylon. All they knew about Jerusalem and Judah was what they'd heard from their grandparents and their parents, who many of whom were now dead. And they didn't even know how to get back to Jerusalem. They weren't even a part of the original exodus out of there into the captivity of, of uh, toward Babylon. God said, I'll take care of all of that. I'll make darkness light before them, the crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and I will, and for them and not forsake them. And then he speaks of any of his, God's enemies that would try to resist him accomplishing this for his people. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our God. Now he turns, Isaiah does back to the present time. And at the time that he was ministering and, uh, and the spiritual uh, deafness and, and all of, of the people at that time, he said, Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, speaking of Israel? 
Judah and Israel were to be the servants of the Lord, but in their disobedience to God, uh, they were not a messenger to the world. They weren't his servant uh, to the world that he had intended them to be. Or deaf is my messenger whom uh, I send, who is blind as he who is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant, seeing many things, but you do not observe, opening the ears, but he does not hear. And so to be uh, blind and to, uh, uh, as he speaks here, and then to be deaf, to lose both of those senses, makes you extraordinarily vulnerable. In life, it puts you in danger in life to lose both of those senses. And God is saying that spiritually speaking, they had lost their ability to hear and they had lost their ability to see. And it put them in a very, very dangerous place uh, in uh, spiritually speaking. And so they were, and ultimately one of the reasons they would end up going into the Babylonian captivity The cause of their blindness and of their deafness, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake and he will exalt the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey and no one delivers uh, for plunder and uh, delivers for plunder and no one says restore. And so he speaks there at the end of verse 21 about the fact that he will exalt the law and make it honorable. They thought uh, nothing of God's law. Uh, by the way, thank you for being here tonight. I just I love the fact that I'm not alone. None of the rest of us are alone here tonight. You're here because you love God's word. And you respect him and his word. And you want to grow in his word. There was not that attitude in Judah 2,700 years ago. They didn't want to know his word. They didn't want to obey his word. But they still wanted to be known as God's people because they wanted the blessings uh, from God. But God says it doesn't work that way. Uh, This is going to end up in some serious chastisement for you. Who among you will give ear uh, uh, to this? And who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? He sinned, uh, he against whom we have sinned. For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured on him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. It has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know, and it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. And what God is saying here is he's speaking now to the Jews while they're in their Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And here they are about to leave that captivity. At least that time would come and they would read this passage. And God is essentially saying to them, Now, I'm going to bring you back into the land. I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. But before you come back into the fullness of my blessings and and what I'm going to pour out on you, remember what took you, what got you in the doghouse what took you into captivity and remember that it was a neglect of my word and disobedience to my word and and remember that lesson so that when you come back into the land you don't repeat the same mistake Uh, no situation in life is a waste that we learn something from and god was telling them that uh 
Learn the lesson of the mistakes that your forefathers made. Make sure that you don't come back into the land to remake those same mistakes, but that you've learned them and you're determined, no, we will come back in and we will obey the Lord and we will honor him with our obedience. Now, in chapter 43, it's important to remember again that there probably the children of Israel at the time of Isaiah, they're not li- Isaiah's prophesying, but it's not having much of a dent. They're not really listening to him. They don't want to listen to him. And so God is speaking in order to speak to them so that they'll be accountable for the, the judgment and the chastisement that's going to come their way. But he's also speaking to them knowing that one day these prophecies of Isaiah are going to be read by the Jews in Babylon. And they're going to infuse hope in the children of Israel in Babylon. For instance, as we head into chapter 43 here in just a moment, and God is going to tell the children of Israel not to be afraid. Uh, That would have been the very thing that they would have been gripping their heart in Babylon, would have been fear. Here they've thrown away their homeland, they've thrown away their homes, they've thrown away their families, their wealth, their history, their everything. They've thrown their whole lives away. They did it. They can't blame anybody else. And it looks like God is through with us, and if he isn't through with us, you know, he ought to be through with us. How in the world, what were we thinking when we did what we did? And their greatest fear was that God was through with them. And that's the thing. I mean, if if you ever go through a backslide, and I hope that nobody does, and here you are, you lose the husband, you lose the wife, you lose the kids, they're scattered in all directions, you lose the home, you lose the job, everything's a mess, and all, all of that weighs upon you. But then when you did it against God, and you were far away from God, and now you want to return to him, as horrible as all of those other things are, and as fearsome as all, fear producing as all of those things, other things are, there's a greater fear in our lives, and that is, will he have me if I return? Will he take me back if I do return? And God wanted the children of Israel to know that, yes, you've thrown it all away, You've made a mess of things and all of this and, and all of these problems and all of these situations and you're in the, in the circumstances that you're in. But the one thing I don't want you to fear is that I'm through with you and, that I, and, to, and to fear that I'm a God who doesn't give second chances and I don't, that I don't restore people when they confess their sin and when they repent. And so imagine now as we read these words, I mean, it's words that a backslider would just absorb in a, in a powerful way, but how they must have heard now as God tells them, no, I'm not through with you. You don't have to be afraid. But now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, He said, for, and for is a reason word, I have redeemed you. And the word redemption means to to release upon the payment of a ransom. God says, I bought you. I bought you. 
You were nothing. You were a nation. You, didn't, you were a family. You didn't even exist as a nation. You owe your creation uh, to me. I have redeemed you, and uh, I have called you by your name. You are mine. Oh! Can you put yourself in Babylon? It's 65 years and five more years to go. And all you want to do is eat a fig from there again. No hope of God ever using you again or he has a plan for you again. All you want to do is see the Mount of Olives one more time, the Kidron Valley, to see the Sea of Galilee one more time. And here God then speaks to them, I have called you by your name, you are mine. And he's trying to relieve them of their fear. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And he reassures them now, they don't need to be afraid because of his presence with them. I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And so God says to them, yes, you have put yourself and gone through. Uh, here as he speaks of rivers and he speaks of fire and flame and all, and they had been through it, but they still existed as a people. And they went through these things. And the reason they went through these things, even the Babylonian captivity, is because he'd never left them. He went to Babylon with them. And he said, I will be with you. And it's a wonderful thing to realize. And again, you see the through, the through, the through, repeated all the way through the verse. And I like so often... Uh, we want, I think as we spoke a little bit about it last week, concerning the great trials and difficulties in life, I want an airplane ride over it. I want to take a detour around it. And so often God manifests his grace in our lives, not by making a way for us to escape the difficult things in life. That's one way, and he does that, and it's wonderful when he does it. But it's just as great a demonstration of his power and of his grace when he stays with us through a great trial, whether of our own making or a trial that he introduces in our life to allow us to be conformed into the image of Christ, and he takes us through that trial. I think we talked about it, those trials that you get through and we get to the other side of them, and we swore and thought a thousand times in the middle of the trial, I will not survive this, I will not make it through this, this will be the death of me. And one day, as quick as the trial came upon our lives, it was over and it was gone, and he got us through it. And the taking it through us through it is as great a miracle of his power and of his love as... Uh, taking and removing the trial and difficulty from our life, though we tend to pray for the one more than the other. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. In other words, when um, uh, Cyrus then began to conquer the world, and he conquered all of the Middle East and far beyond the Middle East, and God uh, speaks to Cyrus to release the Jewish people and to release them without paying any kind of a payment. He didn't ask for a tax on each of their heads or didn't ask God, all right, I'll release your people, you know, but we're losing a pretty good slave labor force. They've been integrated to our society. They're very valuable to us. You ought to give us something in return. God doesn't give them anything in return of that nature. God says, all right, 
I will let you, uh, I will give you uh, the freedom and the ability to conquer Ethiopia and Egypt and Seba. And so uh, he did. And God bartered in that kind of a way. It's interesting. We look at the world geopolitically and we look at the world so often as if it's about uh, supremely about oil or about the stock market or about who's in power or what is the superpower of the world right now. That is nothing. It means nothing. We talk about history being his story, and it is. It's the story of Christ and then also the story of his people. What's happening in this world today, the only thing that matters to God is his people and people in general that he's trying to save. And so that's the thing to be looking at in the, in the world. And God looks and we think, well, what's happening with this country and this is going on and that's happening over here? We have no idea what God is doing behind the scenes in order to secure the release of his people or the betterment of his people or to shift a group of people into a situation that he can use them in a more uh, powerful way. And so God says, since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. God speaks to them in that condition as they're looking to return. Will he have us back? And God reassures them of his love. And therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. And I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. And I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made them. And so God says, you have my word. You wonder about needing to fear me. Here is my word to that fear, and that is I'm going to draw all of you, my people, from the four corners of the earth and bring you back into the land. And so he did uh, there in the near fulfillment related to Cyrus and, uh, and the children of Israel coming back to Jerusalem, as is detailed in the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah. The fullest fulfillment of all of this will, of course, occur during the kingdom age immediately after uh, Jesus' uh, second return. Then he speaks... Uh, beginning in verse 8, he calls on Israel to be a, a witness to the whole world of the fact that he is God. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf people who have ears. He's talking about the Gentile nations who are worshiping all of these idols that had become like their idols. They had ears, they had eyes, but they're worshiping gods that cannot see and cannot hear and as a result became unhearing and unseeing themselves. We become like the God that we worship. He said, let all of the nations be gathered together. He's calling them into a courtroom, so to speak, to put the gods of the, the, the idols of the world on trial before the whole world. Let the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them, of all of these gods that you brought, uh, 
can declare this and show us former things. Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is the truth. And so, again, the God challenge that he has here, bring out your idols. Can they speak of former times and can they uh, prophesy of the future in advance? Let them either do that or then declare that they aren't gods at all, but that I am the true and the living God. And then God speaks to the children of Israel in the middle of this trial, and he said, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. And so God said the children of Israel were a witness to his ability, one of the qualifiers for being a God, and that is to declare the former things before they come to pass, to prophesy of things that are going to come to pass before they come to pass. The children of Israel, in uh, so many fulfillment of prophecies through their history, but here he's speaking about them coming back into the land, following their Babylonian captivity, just as God had prophesied would be the case. God said, rise up, let the whole world know that I did this and that I'm uniquely qualified to be called God uh, if solely on the basis of prophecy alone. And he said, uh, so prophesy or rather be a witness to that, to this whole gathered group from all around the world. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. And even I Uh, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who can reverse it? And so the Lord... Uh, this beautiful uh, testifying once again as he does repeatedly in the section of Isaiah of how the fact that fulfilled prophecy is a, a that is, is unique to him, 100% fulfillment in terms of him being qualified, a test that we can put him to as saying, okay, this one is uniquely qualified to be worshipped as God. And so, in verse 14, God speaks of the coming destruction of Babylon. Remember again, this is phenomenal. We can get so used to it. But remember, at the time that Isaiah is prophesying, Assyria is the world-ruling empire. It would be years before Babylon would ultimately conquer the Assyrians. And so here he is. He's speaking about history way, way in advance. He said, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea. He talks about the coming a defeat of Babylon, and then God is now going to speak about a great exodus that he's going to bring as a result of the fall of Babylon, the exodus of the children of Israel out of Babylon. But first he refers in verse 16 to the previous exodus that they had experienced, the exodus from Egypt into Canaan, the promised land. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, 
and the path through the mighty waters, again speaking about uh, the uh, Egyptian army being flooded in the Red Sea and all, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the arm, army and the power. They shall lie down together and they shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are uh, quenched like a wick. He said, do not remember the former things. God says, I'm going to do an exodus, a miracle in your life that is going to make you forget the former exodus. It's going to be so great. Speaking of his uh, redeeming them out of the Babylonian captivity and once again bringing them back to Jerusalem. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? And again, put yourself in the place of a Jew in, in that Babylonian captivity. And God speaking with such authority concerning the fact that they would once again enter into the land. God said... Um, it, continuing there in verse 19, I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people and to my chosen. God says, I'm going to, when you make that exodus and go from Babylon back into to Jerusalem. I'm going to supply you with water all the way along. And all of the wildlife that is in the wilderness area, whether it's vegetation or animals, they're going to be recipients and they're going to be blessed by the water that I, I bring and supplying to you supernaturally to bring you back to my land. The tender care of the Lord. This people, he says, uh, concerning his people, I have formed for myself, and they shall declare my praise. In other words, when God says, when I do this, my people will recognize that it is a miracle from me. And then he uh, returns here, speaking to uh, uh, Judah here in their kind of in the doghouse. And the Lord says, but you have not called upon me, O Jacob. And this is a, quite a condemnation of, of God, of Jacob, and, and really worth giving some serious consideration to. It reveals to us the heart of God and what is important to him um, from his people. And it's important to realize that the relationship that we have with God is a two-way relationship. And just as we can be hurt in a relationship, God can be hurt in a relationship. We can hurt God. Uh, we can hurt his heart. We can sin against his heart. We can sin against his love. And he feels that. And he experiences that. And that's what he's describing here in their sin toward him. He said, but you have not called upon me, O Jacob. In this long season in Isaiah's time, they just ignored God. Here they were, God's people, you know. Who's going to worship God other than God's people? But even they, they were just ignoring him, going on about their lives as if he didn't exist. And you have been weary of me, O Israel. That's a terrible thing. Imagine being the true and the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, this great God of the Bible, and being the God of even one person, let alone a whole nation of people who are tired of God. I'm tired of God. I'm not going to read his book anymore. I'm not going to go to church anymore. 
I'm not going to serve him anymore. And goes on all of the time. People get tired of God. How do you get tired of God? Something wrong between a person and the Holy Spirit for that to happen. And yet it had happened. And you have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You haven't brought me, you have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. They were failing to honor him by offering up the offerings that were required in the law of Moses. But they did offer to him uh, something, something he didn't want, as he describes there at the end of verse 24. But you have burdened me with your sins, and you have wearied me with your iniquities. And this is, this is the thing, as we read this, that, again, by the Holy Spirit in our lives, it just ought to horrify us, the possibility of it that any of us could be possible, that it could be even a reality in our lives here tonight, that we would treat God in such a way, deny him the honor and the majesty and the glory, the praise and the worship that he's due, and all I'm doing is just burdening him with my sins and my backslidden condition. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned, going all the way back to Adam, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary, and I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. And God says, this is what's happening outwardly. Yeah, you want to look at Jerusalem and all the hustle and bustle and all of the sins and all of the outward things. But he said, in essence, the thing that broke my heart the most is not that these sins were just committed independent and in violation of some law in the Old Testament, as important as that is to God. These were sins against me. This was sins against the relationship that I had with you. And it broke his heart. And it's quite a revelation, an important one for us to uh, understand in our own relationship with uh, the Lord. Let's uh, at least head a little ways into chapter 44 tonight before we stop. Uh, yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant. So here that he leaves in this terrible low spot here now, and yet God is, again, a smoking flax he will not quench, a bruised reed he will not break. And so he's got them here as they read this in Babylon. They're thinking, wow, I mean, we real, what we did to God, oh, it just would almost get buried in shame and condemnation, and yet God won't let it happen. He speaks to them of his promises related to the future. That's why you hear that word, see that word yet, the first word of chapter 44. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, which means upright one, whom I have chosen. And so God refers to them as Jacob, the supplanter, the heel catcher, and he was all of that. He refers to them as Israel, governed by God, also as Jeshurun, 
the upright one, and uh, they were all of that in uh, their history uh, with him. And God says, uh, I'm, I'm not through with you at all. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I don't know if you've ever poured water on soil that is parched. What are you doing if you're living? What are you doing living in the in the Central Valley if you haven't done that in the summertime? Listen, I'm not saying it's the most exciting thing to do in the world, but you pour water out on dry ground. That dry ground just absorbs it, doesn't it? That's why we're praying for more rain uh, here in our wonderful winter in uh, April. So. Uh, He says, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. And then all of this he speaks is a picture of the fact that I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offering. Oh, Lord, we've been so far away from you. Lord, we treated you so badly. Lord, will we ever be able to feel that again? Will we ever be able to know what it is to sing a worship song to you and be completely lost in that song by the Holy Spirit? Will we ever feel your presence in that way again? And God promises them that he will pour his spirit uh, out upon them and they will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. Be, they will prosper as a people once again. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob and another will write with his hand the Lord, uh, Lord's and name himself by the name of the Lord. And so as all of this is, uh, when they return back to the Lord, they'll no longer be ashamed of knowing the Lord, no longer be ashamed of identifying themselves as Christians, so to speak. They will openly and with a sense of privilege say to other people, yes, I am a Christian. And uh, if it means uh, saying it verbally, yes, I am a worshiper of the true and the living God, the God of the Bible, or whether they're writing it in, in some kind of something that's being sent to another person, they will all want to identify themselves once again with the Lord. And thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no other God. And who, uh, and who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show uh, these to them. Do not, be, do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from the, that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. And so God says, all of this is going to come to pass. You're going to be a witness to all of it. Is there, uh, is there a God beside me? He asked the question. Indeed, he said, there is no other rock. I know not one. So it's fascinating here as the Lord is speaking uh, to them uh, concerning himself and he, he repeats the same phrase over and over again through the section is there a god beside me indeed there is no other rock no other god i know not one god doesn't say to the children of israel or to the world as a whole listen there are many many gods out there and all of them lead you to the same place we're all basically worshiping the same god all that really matters is that we're sincere in the worship of whatever god that we choose to worship all of that is nonsense in the eyes of the lord 
He says, there's only one God. I am that God. And, and it's funny here is he says, I know not one. And he says, I've looked around and I don't know of any others beside me. Take my word for it. There is no other God but me. And he repeats it over and over again. And I'll tell you, we need to hear it even today. And that verse and the other verses like it, we've already read a couple of them and we'll continue to read a couple more times uh, through this section, not tonight, but in coming weeks. Very, very damaging. Verse 8 completely deconstructs and destroys the whole religion of Mormonism, which classic Mormonism teaches that a faithful member of the latter, Church of Latter-day Saints can grow into godhood if properly cultivated within the Mormon church. Uh, the fifth president of the uh, Mormon church put it this way, a famous saying uh, uh, is that as, God, as man is, God once was. And as God is, man may become. And God declares as clear as a bell all through this section of Isaiah that all of that is nonsense. There is no other God but him. We are not God. We were not God. We will never be God. And neither will uh, anything, uh, anything else. It's interesting that uh, perhaps some of you have seen, and I recommend it to everyone, uh, that video. We have it up in our uh, library. I don't know if it's for sale in our bookstore, but it's called DNA versus the Book of Mormon. And it examines a claim from the Book of Mormon that an Israelite family uh, immigrated to what is now America and over time uh, fully populated the continent. That is a teaching of the Mormon church. Uh, but then all of a sudden we come into this age of science where we're able to test things by way of DNA research. And new discoveries in DNA research allowed scientists today to test thousands of Native Americans from over 150 tribes to determine their ancestry. And they found no genetic evidence to support this teaching and it put another major nail in the coffin of the historical claims and teachings of the Mormon church. One of the great things about being a Christian and a Bible person is that when the archaeologists uh, take out their spades and their shovels and they keep on digging, I get excited. I don't lose one moment of sleep over what they might find in terms of the Bible. I know all they'll find will confirm the teaching of the Bible. When science is working and all of the things that they're doing and all of the research and all of it, I, it doesn't worry me one bit because I know everything they discover as they handle the evidence properly and honestly is going to simply confirm what the Bible says. But if you've made something up on your own and you've made up something that's false, like Joseph Smith did with Mormonism, then you've got to be afraid of what's going to happen in history and the capacity of men to even test your truths by way of DNA testing. And so it happened. But that is a fear that Christians and Bible people, lovers of the, uh, the God of the Bible, don't have to uh, worry about at all. I'm going to basically read through it. I'll keep you another three minutes. This is what I taught on this morning. 
So I don't want to stop and then do it again a week after we taught on the Sunday morning. So please, just be gracious to me and say, for his sake, let him do it. God speaks of the foolishness, the folly of idolatry, really the insanity of it. He said, those who make an image, make idols, all of them are useless. And here he's not talking about the idols. He's talking about people who make idols and worship them. They're useless. They don't bring anything to of profit to mankind. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know. These things that they create out of their hands, they have no capacity to see or no intellect with which to direct or to speak. And they ought to be ashamed of, of uh, the fact that they uh, worship and create these idols. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Why? And surely all of his companions would be ashamed in the work They are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. So imagine the insanity God is speaking of, of men making gods. Hello. Is that crazy? You've got people making gods. Why would you want to worship anything that you could create? And because, again, as we saw this morning, the creation is always lesser than the creator. The blacksmith with the tongs as he works to make an idol out of metal. He works this idol on the coals and he fashions it with hammers and he works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, as he does it, he gets hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water and he gets faint as a result. Why in the world would we worship something that can't even keep us strong while we're making it? And the craftsman now, speaking of the carpenter, he stretches out his rule and he marks out an idol with chalk and he begins to map out the idol on the wood and he fashions it then with a plane and he marks it out with a compass and he makes it like the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and he takes cypress and the oak and he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Well, who made the wood? Who made the the pine? Who brings the rain? Who created the soil? That's the one you want to worship not what you can make out of it. And then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of that same log that he made a god out of and he will put it in a fire to warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and he bakes bread on that fire. Indeed, he makes a god and he worships it and he makes a carved, it a carved image and he falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire and with this half he eats meat and he roasts a roast and is satisfied he even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire and the rest of it. He makes into a god he, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. And God said, It's a deception. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there any knowledge nor understanding to say, I, wait a second. Uh, I made a God out of half of this law. And, uh, and then with uh, 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 the other half of the log, 
I uh, burned it in the fire, and I baked bread on the coals, and I've made eat meat, and I've eaten it. And then shall I make the rest of it? Can the rest of it then really be an abomination or an idol or something that's worthy of our worship? God says it isn't. That's why he calls it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there... Is there not a lie in my right hand? In other words, no one should worship what can be burned or will one day be burned. And Peter wrote, writes in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements with a, will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and all of the works that are in it will be burned up. All of it is going to burn. All of this is going to be burned. And God said, therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Was well, certainly not an idolater. Not to worship what is set aside one day to be burned. He said, instead, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we worship you tonight, even as we close, and we praise you. We praise you not only for our personal history with you, but all of the evidence that you have given us, evidence that we can understand whether 90 years old or 30 years old or a mere child, for the existence of you, Lord, and the proof that you've given to us of your uniqueness among all in the world that claim to be God and clamor, Lord, for our worship and for our attention. We thank you, Lord, tonight as we consider it, our own individual salvation story and what you did day by day and week by week and year by year to open our eyes up to the truth of you and to deliver us out of idolatry and out of darkness and into the glory and the light and the beauty of the life that is ours tonight, rich in hope, rich in peace. And we thank you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. If you stand here tonight and you are not yet a Christian,